According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in Luke 24. Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. Jesus' appearance to two disciples on the Emmaus Emmaus Road. Luke 24, 13 through 35. One of the characteristics of the Gospel of Luke that sets it apart from Matthew or Mark or John is all the, uh, the personal interest stories, the human stories, as it were. Remember, Matthew presents Christ as the king. Mark presents Christ the servant. Uh, John has the deity emphasis. Christ is the son of God and his deity. Luke uh, stresses the humanity of Jesus Christ. And many of the uh, things that we associate with humanity, the human interest stories and so forth, they show up in the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to read about the prodigal son, it's the Gospel of Luke. You want to read about the the stranger on the road to Emmaus, it's the Gospel of Luke. Many of the the things here, uh, the personal human interest aspects of our Savior's ministry. Um, the uh, rich man and Lazarus. Where's that story? In the Gospel of Luke. Okay, Different aspects there. So here we are. Luke 24, 13. Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? So this is where we are. We've had a couple of sessions at it. want to uh, get right back to it here this morning. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to humble us for the authority of doctrine. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunities we have and the grace opportunities you extend to each one of us. We thank you for this time this morning. Once again, it is a grace opportunity. We want to redeem it for the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you for making this day possible, Father. Now, uh, we do commit to you our time of study for your hand of blessing, Father, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, the ears of our heart, uh, guide us into the truth, Father, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And thank you to Dan, who seems to have the pulpit wired and ready. (laughs) So, we left off with, um, we've covered four points of study. We're ready now for the name calling, as Jesus calls them foolish, and begins to teach them, beginning with Moses. Uh, Real quickly, we'll run through the outline of what we've covered already. Uh, The two of them that are mentioned are the others of verse 9. Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus. It's a little bit awkward and commentators will speculate on it because the nearest antecedent actually refers to disciples or apostles. The fact that in the paragraph before you have the women that are making reports to the apostles. Uh, verse 10, they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. And that appears to be the nearest antecedent for what we're looking at. Uh, and then it says, but these words appeared to them. There's a them. And the them there in verse 11 is clearly the apostles uh, as nonsense. And they, the apostles, would not believe them, the women. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping, looking in, saw the linen wrappings only. He went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. All right. And so that's the only context we have now for verse 13, to behold two of them. And, uh, you know, and again, it would seem to be two of the apostles in verse 10, except when we see in verse 9 that not only are the 11 there, but there's also all the rest all the rest, beyond the eleven. And that would include Matthias. That would include uh, the alternative to Matthias when those two were put forward and selected to uh, to see who would replace Judas Iscariot. And, and perhaps others, perhaps uh, even up to 70. There were 70 disciples at one point that were sent out two by two. So how many more beyond the eleven were in that room on that night when uh, when the women showed up? 
in any event. Some commentators try to say that these were two of the apostles, and uh, including a fellow here we've never heard of before named Cleopas in verse 18. Uh, I think, in my mind anyway, when we get the name mentioned and it's not one of the eleven, then it's natural to assume that both of these were uh, included as the others of, uh, of verse 9. Cleopas, uh, I think it's best to think of him as something different than Clopas, that uh, Clopas is an Aramaic name that's brought into Greek. Uh, Clopas is mentioned as uh, being either the father or the husband of uh, one of the women at the, at the uh, cross. Uh, in John 19.25, again, commentators try to blend these, try to tell you that Clopas is the same as Cleopas, and they even go so far as to say is the same as Alphaeus, and uh, different aspects there. I think that Cleopas is different from Clopas, because Cleopas actually is a genuine Greek name. It's not a transliterated Aramaic name. It's the masculine form of Cleopatra as a uh, shortened form of Cleopatros, and uh, so forth. But even that has its uh, critics. There are some folks that deny that there, that Greek literature has ever produced a an example of a masculine form of Cleopatra, and uh, well, they may be right. <laughs> In any event, the second disciple is anonymous, uh, usually thought of as his wife or his son. Uh, in any event, the not named. Uh, if it is his son, and if this is the Cleopas that we know about from later uh, early church history, then uh, the son of Cleopas ends up becoming one of the original uh, bishops or pastors uh, for the church at Caesarea, which is another interesting point of study. I think it's uh, useless speculation. If the Bible doesn't name him, the Bible doesn't name him. All right, point two. Emmaus is a village 60 stadia from Jerusalem. To give that our modern equivalent, that'd be about seven miles. And we looked at the geography a couple weeks ago to see that northwest of Jerusalem on the road to Joppa. And although there are three or four leading candidates for uh, folks today as far as uh, identifying the precise location, there's not unanimous agreement, but there are three or four leading candidates. I like the Arab town uh, Kubeba. It's in the Palestinian territories to this day. I think it fits better than the other one, the Emmaus Nicopolis. That one's more popular among tourists because it's on the Israeli side of the security fence and uh, it's easier for the tourists to get to and uh, and uh, and observe. Uh, nevertheless, I think that the uh, the Arab town is much more likely location. All right, they were prevented from recognizing Jesus. Prevented from recognizing Jesus. Verses 15 and 16. And I haven't said a lot about this other than the fact that uh, this is not the only event where this took place. It happened previously to Mary, uh, to Martha. She thought he was the gardener. Uh, it's going to happen again to the disciples. Uh, they don't, they're not going to recognize it's him right away um, in John 21. And, you know, for our application, what, you know, do we glean principles from that? Or, you know, do we, um, how do we approach things when people don't recognize us? <laughs> you know, is that, is that an opportunity for, for what? You know, um, maybe there's a little ornery part of you that uh, might find some amusement in not being recognized. Um, my first conference I ever attended at, in uh, Kansas City at Beth Haven Church is all the way back in 2000. And, and, um, I went up there and uh, standing next to Ralph and, and uh, hadn't seen Ralph in quite a while and uh, visiting with Ralph. And then uh, I, I, I'm on tape, so I'll leave it anonymous. But a, a former Austin Bible Church member who moved to Kansas City, um, who I used to be their pastor, um, didn't recognize me. And uh, recognized Ralph right away, went up and hugged Ralph and said hi to Ralph and so forth. And then reached out their hand and introduced themselves to me. And as if I'm a stranger on the road to Emmaus or something, you know, so I just kind of smiled and shook their hands, said, very pleased to meet you, and uh, and uh, told them my name. And then they were, of course, horribly embarrassed because I used to be their pastor. And they were members here at Austin Bible Church. In any event, I won't name the name. I've already embarrassed them enough. But that's the kind of thing. So if you're not known, then what is it an opportunity for? What is it an opportunity for? Now, put it in an evangelism context. If you're not known, if, uh, if you're sitting in a jiffy lube and, and they don't know you're a pastor because you're in disguise, right? And, uh, and you're watching something on TV and the person turns to you and asks, well, I agree with that. What do you think? Well, you got an opportunity, right? Because they didn't realize the person they just asked, what do you think, is actually pastoring of a Bible church is going to give them a divine viewpoint answer. So 
Anyway, I think there are illustrations or there are applications we can make. Jesus did this at least three different times, maybe more. And uh, perhaps uh, something that we can consider just with respect to our uh, missionary endeavors. All right, point four. Their conversation was on current events, the happenings, on the happenings. And uh, under this, uh, I think it's useful to, uh, as we stressed last week, and we might look at these Luke verses. I know we skipped them last week. Um, The happenings, just common events, happenings, uh, things to talk about. Just a a generic, you want to talk about the weather, that's happening. You want to talk about uh, politics, that's happening. Talk about what's going on in the news. You know, what's the city of Austin doing these days, things like that. Just the happenings. And it, it becomes a conversation piece, becomes something that friends can talk about while they're traveling, or even strangers can come up and say, you know, what are you talking about? And they have a, uh, a frame of reference because you're all in the area. They were shocked. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? It seems to be that just your proximity ought to mean that you're aware of it, right? Like, how can you possibly live in San Antonio and never go to the Alamo? Or how could you possibly live in Austin and not have any idea what Barton Springs Pool is? Okay, you know you, you just can't be that clueless. Your your presence in this location at this time, it'd be like if you were visiting Dallas in November of 1963 and you had no idea that that the president was assassinated or something, right? You know you were in the town on that day and uh, had no idea why the police cars, all the sirens were going and different things like that. Hey, how clueless can you be? So, when happenings are taking place, the world will take notice, but the world is not going to have the divine viewpoint perspective. And this is where their understanding falls short. They've got a partial understanding, um, but they don't have a complete understanding. In fact, the little bit they do know has left them discouraged. Because combined with the, the little bit they do know, combined with the part they don't know, or they can't accept by faith, has left them in a place of discouragement. And that better be a warning for us. Um, not only here this morning, but but moving forward. All right, the vocabulary of sumbino. Uh, bino means to go uh, down or to fall and to fall together when, when things just kind of all come crashing down together. You know, five things that never happen, they all happen on the same day. And what, what then results, you know? Um, <laughs> it just all fell into place. Amazing how all those five different coincidences, and they never happen. But they all happen on the same day. Imagine. Okay? So, uh, that's Sumbino. And then Ginnemai is to happen. You know, things happen. And to, to become, to happen, to occur, things just happen. And it's a, it's a device, and all languages have a term similar to this. Uh, all languages have a way to express activities in the neutral way. All right. So it's not just saying that uh, somebody did something to somebody else. It's just something happened. And it's a way to talk about an event in a neutral way without speaking of the agency, without speaking of who's doing it or why or how, just saying that it happens. Okay. Bible class happens. Okay. A life of Christ class is happening right now. And we can talk about it in a neutral way. Or we can talk about it in an active way. Pastor Bob is teaching. And then we have who's doing it and where is it happening and all the details involved. Or we just talk about it in a neutral, in a neutral way. Okay? And um, it's fairly common. I think um, we can pull this up now. How do I do this? Like so? It may not be worth it, but we'll try. The first one of these is Luke chapter 1 of the Gidemiah occurrences in Luke. Luke's very fond of these, Luke 1.8. So we'll start with that. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. It just so happened, you know? Lucky for God that Zacharias was, happened to be the priest on duty that day. <laughs> it just happened, you know? And, uh, you know, because God was really wanting John the Baptist to be born to a couple of old people. And uh, 
lucky for God, it just so happened that Zacharias was the priest chosen by lot, random, random, short, you know, short straw. Just so happened that he was in there. Okay, are we going to look at it that way? As doctrinal believers, we got to realize that stuff just doesn't happen without rhyme, without reason, without cause. That's the unbeliever's view. That's the that's the evolutionary view. There's no reason. There's no cause. There's no purpose. It's just stuff happens. Right? Big bang explodes. There's no purpose for it. It just happens. Everything is just time and chance to the unbeliever. All right, now I'm going to do the search here for Ginnamai. And there it is. And we'll just go ahead and limit it to Luke. Can I do that? All right. See, I can't see what that says. We're making do with um, a stopgap measure this morning, and I appreciate it. All right, there we are. Don't want to do that. Here we go. All right, so it just so happened in Luke 1.8. All right, the next one would be in Luke 1.59, Luke 2.15, Luke 5.1. There's a whole string of these. I thought it would be faster to, uh, to do it this way. Ah, There we go. Because there's too many Ginnamites in Luke. Alright, verse 59. And it happened on the eighth day that they came to uh, circumcise the child and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, he should be called John. Well, so it just so happened. Happened to be on the eighth day. They just happened. No, they didn't happen to... You know, you don't just happen to get circumcised. You make a choice. <laughs> Your parents make a choice. They consciously took him in. They were obedient to the scriptures. All right. But when you just say, no, it happened, it's a, it's, a, it's a means of communicating an event in a neutral way. Okay. And it's common. It's common in all languages. You can find examples of this in the Hebrew. In fact, it's very common in Hebrew and it came to pass. You know, it's a very expressive uh, feature of the Hebrew language. 2.15 Shepherds, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. Alright, they want to check it out. They were told that it had happened, but they want to go see it for themselves. Okay? Now if, if angels show up out of the blue and these beings of light and they're flying and they land and they tell you something's happened, do you really think it's happened? Or you think they're lying to you? Okay, well, let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see these things that have happened. Luke 5, 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. Anyway, so it goes on. But it happened. It's just a way to introduce an event. An event that happened. And it becomes a conversation piece among believers and unbelievers alike. Now it happened that while that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. It just so happened. That's Luke 6 and verse 1. Uh, Luke 8, 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported to the city, <clears throat> and in the country, and here's where uh, Legion gets healed, this crazy guy that lives in the cemetery, and all of a sudden now he's in his right mind again. And uh, and uh, the pigs have gone running down into the water, and so these uh, herdsmen have to go report that all their pigs are dead. <laughs> I know we're supposed to be watching the pigs, but they're in the lake. All right. And so then the people went out to see what had happened. Okay. 
So it's common. We can talk about current events. We can talk about what's going on. We can talk about, you know, everything that happened on Sunday. Talk about everything that happened on a particular day. I think it's um, common to the human experience. Luke 8.56 Her parents were amazed, but He instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Luke 9.7 Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. He's hearing about Jesus and his ministry, about his prophetic ministry, about the miracles and all the rest. And, you know, imagine he had some guilt over uh, putting the prophet to death the way that he had done when he had John uh, executed. Anyway, there's more. Uh, And you should have them. I think I listed them all last week for you and had the chance to write them down. Um... I don't know that we'll glean anything more by looking at the rest of those. Luke 14, 1, Luke 17, 26, and 28, Luke 21, 31. The point being, though, without divine viewpoint, without God's perspective on life, then circumstances, events, things that happen uh, can leave um, a human being just jaded. Uh, helpless, just a victim of circumstances. So what are you going to do? You can't control anything. You know, it just happens and we've got no choice. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, not like we can do anything to affect uh, the stock market. We can't do anything to, to make our government uh, stop doing such stupid things, <laughs> right? Uh, just things are going to happen and, and we can't control it. And an unbeliever can get totally discouraged based on that. And sadly, a carnal believer likewise can be so caught up in their happenings that they don't stop to say, Father, you either directed this or you permitted this. And I don't even need to know why. I just need to continue on faithful, walking my, my course. I just need to understand that whatever it is, you know, this cancer diagnosis or this whatever, it's in your hands, Father. It surprised me today, but you knew about it before the foundation of the world. And so we're not slaves to our happenings. Okay? This is the very concept, I think, that years ago sparked uh, Pastor Thiem and his, the development of, of the mastery of the circumstances and details of life. That's what it comes down to. And I've always appreciated that particular doctrine. Took you to the church fathers last week under subpoint B. In the early church, happenings were to be accepted as the will of God for your life. Those are your happenings. Now, we don't become fatalistic about it because I think you can go overboard the other direction as well. Um, You can feel hopeless and helpless by not paying attention to what God's doing. You can also go overboard the other way and become a total fatalist, uh, as in, you know, Calvinism or hyper-Calvinism, and just say, well, everything is maximum sovereignty, and I've got no choice in the matter anyway, and so everything that happens is God's will, and why question it? And be so consumed in the fatalism of it that you stop caring. Okay? And that's an extreme we don't want to go to. Yes, we accept it as the will of God for your life, but not as just simply, again, a victim. I think, I think people that go that way on the determinism side of things, they're still victims and hopeless and slaves. They're just slaves. They have a name for their, for their slave master. They call him God. Uh, the the atheist is still hopeless and helpless, a victim of his circumstances, and he just doesn't have a name for it because he doesn't believe in God. <laughs> but they're both just in a mindset that says, oh, well, can't change it anyway. Can't change it anyway. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Biblical Christianity says, wait a minute. You can go to your father and you can ask. You can go to your father and become, a, as a fellow worker, and leave those circumstances with him and allow him to change it in his wisdom, in his timing. And don't just simply surrender to uh, say, well, okay. That's the fatalism of it. And I find it heartbreaking because so many believers are there. And they never pray for stuff because they figure, well, when it's God's will, it's God's will. Why bother asking for it? Okay? That's a pathetic approach. He commands us to ask for it. Point C, talking, discussing, and exchanging words. There's a trio of terms here in verse 14, 15, and 17. Um, The Holman uses discussing, arguing, and disputing. In verse 14, they're talking with each other about all these things which have taken place. Something happens, you want to talk about it. Verse 15, 
It says they were talking and discussing. And so you have uh, discussing and then arguing. And then in verse 17, what are these words you are exchanging? Now you're exchanging words. <laughs> okay? You ever done that? Say, well, we're going to have words. Okay? Usually that's an euphemism. That means they're not going to be pleasant words. So uh, it's, it's quite remarkable. You know, Luke is, is an interesting author anyway, but to use, to use all, three different expressions in these verses, to, I think he shows a progression. I think he shows uh, that the longer they walked and the more they talked about it, the, um, the uglier the conversation was getting. It went from a, a, a talk to a discussion to a dispute or to an argument. If you're reading a New King James, then you have talked, conversed, reasoned, and then conversation. So they've got four different expressions in the, in the New King James between these three verses. New American Standard only has three, and the Holman only has three. But all of this discussion was without faith. Notice, he says in verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now, see, what's interesting is they've had the teaching. They were familiar with the teaching, but they had not united it by faith. And the book of Hebrews tells us that's the reason why the wilderness generation didn't profit from the word of God that was given to them. Because it was not united by faith. Faith. Why does the word not profit you when it's not united by faith? All right. You're familiar with that in the book of Hebrews? Nope, that's Romans. Faith comes by hearing. That's Romans. Hebrews. Let's go to chapter 4, chapter 3 or 4. <clears throat> four two. Hebrews 4.2. And the warning, their warning at the end of chapter 3 is then summarized and explained at the beginning of chapter 4. It says in Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now that's a warning you and I need to pay attention to. All the warnings in Hebrews are for believers to pay attention to. Take care, brethren. You don't want an evil, unbelieving heart that goes into apostasy. Okay, not loss of salvation, but departure from your disciple status. You stop abiding in the word of God. You stop even thinking about spiritual things because you're now consumed by the earthly things. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So you notice there's the any one of you, there's the one another, and then there's the none of you. This is an absolute warning for every believer in the church age. And the example is the wilderness generation. These, those that, uh, ex, uh, that exited Egypt, the Exodus generation. Uh, who provoked him? With whom was he angry for 40 years? Uh, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Okay. As we see in verse 19, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. They did not enter the promised land. Now they came out of Egypt. That's the picture of redemption. They were redeemed out of their slavery. Not one of them was ever returned back to bondage. Not one of them was returned to Egypt. The Red Sea didn't part a second time and no one went back. Redemption from slavery is a one-time deal and there's no return. Okay? It's eternal secure. But they didn't enter into the promised land. They did not walk by faith. And because they weren't walking by faith, they fell under divine discipline. Because of their unbelief, they didn't enter into their rest. Same thing happens for you and I. We're believers. We don't lose our salvation, but what happens when we walk in unbelief? What happens when we stop walking by faith, we start walking by sight again? We're going to fall in the wilderness. We'll come under divine discipline. We're going to fall short of the faith rest that he's provided for us in the church age. And that's how chapter 4 starts then. Therefore, let us fear. Therefore, let us fear. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Here's a falling short we've got to be concerned about. I am no longer concerned about the Romans 3.23 falling short. I'm past that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're, we know that verse, all right? Well, because we have eternal life, we're saved, we're past that. I'm no longer concerned about all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. That falling short was taken care of the day I got saved. This falling short, though, this is the ongoing concern. 
And day by day by day, every believer ought to stop and say, wait a minute, am I falling short of this? Is my appetite what it was a year ago? My appetite what it was 10 years ago? Am I growing complacent in my walk? Not just for intake, but also for application. I don't want to come short of that rest. For indeed, verse 2, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And this is where faith is applied when the word is taught. We have to unite the word of God with faith. Otherwise, it's not, we're not going to profit. Remember, the word is profitable. The, life, the word of God is God-breathed and profitable. Profitable. But does it always profit? Because it's able to profit, does that mean it always profits? No. It does not profit when we don't unite it by faith. It does not profit when we don't even listen to it. If we keep this thing closed and up on a shelf somewhere and never open it up, never read it, how is it going to profit us? If we're not under consistent face-to-face teaching, how is it going to profit us? We have to receive it by faith. Receive it by faith. So here's these guys. They've had Bible class before. They've, they've been taught by Jesus Christ. They don't believe it. They have no faith. He says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all. Let me get back to Luke here again. See, if you don't unite the Word of God with faith, He doesn't become active in your soul. All right, back to Luke 24 then. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. These disciples had partial knowledge, but no understanding. They explained a few things to him. He asked him, what, what are you talking about? And then they said to him, the, uh, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, in verse 19. So they've got knowledge. This isn't Jesus called justice. This isn't, I mean, there were probably several Jesuses of that day. Uh, we know there were several Judases. There were several Jameses. They were pretty... Um, limited in their name selection i think <laughs> and so yeah there was jesus called justice there was jesus uh, judas barsabbas there was several names and in jesus is just the greek form of joshua i expect there were a number of joshua's in that day yeshua but uh, jesus of nazareth that identifies him so they know where he was born jesus the nazarene who was a prophet now are they right about that or are they wrong about that they're right but not but He's more than a prophet, okay? So, yeah, I would count that as partial knowledge. He is prophet, priest, and king because he's Christ. So they're not wrong to call him a prophet, but calling him a prophet is, is, uh, is limited. It's not the entire story. Mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Okay, are they wrong about any of that? No, it's true as far as it goes, but it's external. It's earthly. It's, uh, it's just the, uh, the secular uh, concept of why Jesus died and who did it. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And that's where they're flawed. He is the one who redeemed Israel, but they rejected his redemption. He is their Messiah. He shed his blood as the blood of the new covenant. But it's not going to be applied until second advent because of their rejection. He uh, sentenced them to that. He said, your house is being left to you desolate. Behold, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they've rejected their king. They've rejected their kingdom. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things have happened. We thought he was our Redeemer, but he died. Oh well, must not have been our Redeemer. Also, some of the women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came, saying that they had seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Well, that's what they said anyway. But we don't believe them either. We don't believe the prophets and we don't believe those women. (laughs) 
And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Yeah, we checked out their story. They went and they looked at the tomb. Yeah, the tomb's empty. They didn't see him though. (laughs) So, partial knowledge but no understanding. They knew Jesus died on a cross but failed to appreciate its spiritual significance. They knew that he died on a cross, but failed to appreciate its spiritual significance. Even the, even the disciples in Acts 1, after he's risen and he appears to them, and they say, all right, Lord, can we have the kingdom now? <laughs> you know, nothing about their sins forgiven, nothing about eternal life, nothing about uh, taking away the sin of the world. Failing, uh, just that's what happens when all you can think about is in political terms. Earthly, secular, political terms. <laughs> you know, and we talk about uh, how bad things are getting in our country. What cycle of discipline are we under? Uh, when might this nation be destroyed? And then uh, somebody says, boy, I agree, you're right, things are terrible. We must be close to the rapture. Wait a minute. Who says the rapture was designed by God the Father to deliver Americans from the destruction of their nation? You're confusing something secular with something spiritual. Let's let's get dispensationally uh, on track with the proper hermeneutic here. <laughs> okay, the rapture delivers us from the tribulation. It does not deliver us from the destruction of the United States of America. But when you confuse patriotism with spirituality, um, you can make those non sequiturs. They heard about the resurrection, but they remained skeptical. They heard about the resurrection, but they remained skeptical. Yeah. The apostles said, that the women said, that the angels said that he'd risen. But the apostles went to check out what the women said, and they didn't see any angel. They didn't see him risen. So, you know. The disciples said that, the women said that the angels said that he is risen. But, you know, you know what they say. Okay? And and so you see what happens here. They're, they're just dismissive. They're, they're relegating it like everything else on the street. You know, well, you know what they say. You know? They say we might have a, uh, we had a pretty mild summer. They say we might have a wet fall. Well, what do they know? And who's they anyway? Them, Right. All right, so Jesus called them foolish and taught them beginning with Moses. Point five, Jesus called them foolish and taught them beginning with Moses. So here's the name calling. And this is, uh, you know, if, uh, if you're talking to a fool, uh, is it edifying to call them foolish? Scripture does. When Scripture commands you to not be foolish and when Scripture commands you to acquire wisdom, when you've got a book of Proverbs in your canon, hello, Jewish Old Testament, Christian uh, Bible, we both have the book of Proverbs. When uh, we have Ephesians telling us to not be foolish but understand what the will of God is. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Don't be foolish. Trust the Scriptures. Trust the Scriptures. Now, so point A. Being foolish is more than a simple contrast with the why. That's, that's too easy. Being foolish is more than a simple contrast with the why. I think we should start there. We can turn to Proverbs. We can turn to Romans 1.14. There's several places we could illustrate this with. Let me just grab Romans 1.14 here. Paul says, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So there you have it. Sure, there's a contrast between the wise and the fool. Absolutely, but there's more than that. Foolishness is a terrible circumstance for believers, and it serves as a suitable description for a life without Christ. Beyond the simple contrast is the tragedy of a Christian who does not need to be foolish who has been provided a body of Scripture so that we're not foolish, who has been indwelt with God the Holy Spirit to guide us into those Scriptures 
so that we are guaranteed to never be foolish ever again. Foolishness is a terrible circumstance for believers. I know why the world is foolish. Because the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. So obviously the unbeliever is a fool. All of them are. There's not a wise one among the unbelievers because they're all steeped in the world's wisdom. The tragedy is when a believer loses sight of doctrine, loses sight of God's word, loses sight of God's grace. And then he starts thinking like an unbeliever all over again. Remember the nature of the, of the, of the carnal man in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Paul says, I can't speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to carnal men, as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I'd love to speak to you in spiritual terms, but you can't handle it. Even now you're carnal. The carnal believer is just like an unbeliever in terms of their thinking. It's absolutely captive to the cosmos wisdom of this age. So in Galatians 3, we read about the, uh, the, these terrible circumstances. Galatians 3, verse 1, verse 3. You foolish Galatians. There's Paul with more name calling. Okay? Jesus name called. Paul name called. Alright, maybe the newsletter was a little harsh. Stampede, stampeding rabid wildebeests. <clears throat> Boisterous yak fests. I hope that with grace and a relaxed mental attitude that there's such a thing as sanctified name-calling. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. See, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. He says, just answer one thing for me. Answer one thing. That's all I want. Jesus had the same approach. He said, just answer this and I'll answer you. Just tell me one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did you get saved? (laughs) How did you get saved? Did the law get you saved? Or did you get saved by grace through faith? And then you received the Holy Spirit at that moment of your salvation. That's all I want to know. Okay, great. Morons. Are you so foolish? Okay, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You're going back to that very thing that couldn't save you in the first place? You're going to go back to that? That's not what saved you. See, it's a terrible circumstance. It serves as a suitable description for the life without Christ. Titus 3.3 The life without Christ. And this is what we were saved from. And the idea that we're going to go back to that after we're saved is just, it's heartbreaking. You know, why did God send His Son? Why did, he, why did He cause His Son to die if you're just going to live like that anyway? You could have done that as an unbeliever and He could have kept the Son in heaven. Titus 3.3 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved of various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. What a lost estate. And that's what it is. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. What a provision. So when he calls these men foolish, that's a, that's a pretty harsh rebuke. Slow of heart. Interesting phrase, and I don't find it a whole lot of places. It seems to be one step short of hardness of heart. It seems to me that if you are slow, then uh, you're just one step short of hardness. One step short. You know, think about the uh, artery blockage. And that's uh, the, the sclerosis, right? The arteriosclerosis. And the same, even, even our medical terminology borrows from the Greek. 
the scleros and the sclerao, that is the hardness of heart. And you think about that hardness, it doesn't just show up immediately. It doesn't just show up overnight. It's, uh, you know, 17 years of pluckers that gradually, gradually, things start slowing, things start slowing, and then they stop. So, again, if you're slow of heart, if your appetite is diminished, if, uh, you know, they're, you, they're back in the day there was a time that, man, you were in five classes a week. But nowadays it just kind of seems that, well, it's a chore. Well, I get to one or two and I feel bad about it. Well, ask, ask the Lord, why am I slow of heart? Am I approaching hardness of heart? Can you soften my heart? You're asking for a fish. He's not going to give you a snake. Ask the Father to provide for that. All right, Luke 9, verses 44 and 45. I don't think we need to illustrate this a whole lot, but remarkably enough, he's not talking to Pharisees. He's not talking to, we know they've got hard hearts. He's not talking to Sadducees. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to disciples, one step short of apostles. They were with the apostles on Resurrection Sunday. They left the apostles in Jerusalem to go to Emmaus on Resurrection Sunday. Presumably they were with the apostles all weekend. From Friday through Saturday through Sunday. They heard the women's report. They heard the the disciples checking in and said, well, it's a bunch of garbage and took off for Emmaus. He's not talking about Pharisees. He's talking about disciples. Those that had been his followers for who knows how long. Who knows how long? All right. Luke 9, 44 and 45. The um, cast out a demon there in the paragraph before, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. All this amazement. Why do people get amazed? You know, they were amazed at the women's report. Now these guys are amazed at the demon being cast out. And while everyone was marveling, at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. <laughs> what an idiom, huh? Let these words sink into your ears. In other words, you listen to a Bible class, you listen to doctrine, and you do so actively. You do so hungrily. You do so with positive volition. You do so in fellowship. You ask the Father, let these words sink in. Let the word be, uh, be, be planted, richly dwell within me. Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. What happens when you are not actively listening, when you're not actively humble, when you're not actively receiving what's being what's being fed? Okay? It's not a passive thing. The pastor feeds the flock, but you've got to eat. You know, as if somehow just sitting there, it sinks in by osmosis or something. Just sitting there and the, the pastor will just shove it down your gullet and you, uh, you'll digest it at some point. No. The pastor feeds. How's the pastor feed? How's the shepherd feed the sheep? He leads them to the grass. But he doesn't grab hold of the back of their neck and shove their face into the grass and force them to chomp on the grass. Took them to where the good grass was. And then they ate. All right. It's interesting here. Let these words sink into your ears. I like, uh, I like passive imperatives or, or third person imperatives. The idea of make it so. The idea of let it be. The idea of, uh, of uh, let. Isn't let a good word? I love let. That's a great word. Let means it's going to happen if you don't stop it. Let means don't hinder it. Let means make sure that you're in fellowship, that you're actively engaged. It's going to happen so long as you embrace it. Let these words sink into yours. That's what they're designed to do. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's what it's designed to do. Don't hinder it. Let means don't hinder. 
And if you disobey the let, that means you're hindering. All right, over to Hebrews, Hebrews 5.11. A little bit further down from the context we were reading earlier. And he's writing to believers. Hebrews 5.11. And we've got this great, great chapter. This powerful doctrine of verses 1 through 10. I could just eat that up. Let's stop what we're doing and teach verses 1 through 10. A gorgeous stretch of doctrine right there. It said, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Then in verse 11, he says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Slow. Okay, Not totally hardened yet, but a step short of that. Dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you. Because you're dull of hearing, because you're slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Um, You're not growing the way that you need to be growing. You've not reached the point now where you can disciple younger believers. You've come to need milk again and not solid food. You realize spiritually speaking, you can do that. Now, our, humanly speaking, you know, our biology does not revert back to infantile status where, uh, you know, once you're a grown adult accustomed to meat and solid food that you're going to be sustained again by, by uh, breast milk or whatever. Um, but spiritually speaking, you see what this is saying here? This is saying that you're back to the milk again. You ought to be on solid food. We thought we weaned you. <laughs> and now you're back on the nipple. All right. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And when you're dull of hearing, not only will your growth be stunted, you'll actually revert. So that's reversionism. You're going to revert back to a spiritual infantile status. You need that milk again. You've got to get back on, on feeding. So slow of heart, ask yourself, why is it? Why is it my appetite's not what it used to be? Finally, James 1.19. James 1.19. This you know, my beloved, that everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If you want a slowness, have, uh, have that slowness. Don't have slow to hear. <laughs> We're supposed to be quick to hear. Quick to hear. Ready to hear. Is there another Bible class after this one? I'm ready. Is there another Bible class tonight? I'm ready. Is there another Bible class tomorrow morning? I'm ready. I'm quick to hear. Oh, the the church isn't assembled, but there's a website there. It never closes. All right. Quick to hear. Slow to speak and slow to anger. We don't want the slowness to slip over to the... Sadly, too many believers are slow to hear and quick to speak. (laughs) And they don't know anything, but they gladly talk about everything they don't know as if they do know. All right. The prophets, beginning with Moses and from the prophets. This expression here, I find this powerful. And we'll... we'll, uh, Deal with this, and then we'll come back to this next week because it's not fair to do this in six minutes. It starts with the prophets, and then beginning with Moses, and from the prophets. We've got a, a connection here. Let's look at this here in Luke 24. I believe that Jesus Christ gives us our hermeneutic, and I believe that Jesus Christ gives us our homiletic. reason why I'm a literal interpretationist, the reason why I have a literal hermeneutic is because Jesus had a literal hermeneutic. That's how he handled the Scriptures. When he preached the Scriptures, he used a literal hermeneutic. We've got examples of that. The, uh, the fact is, the New Testament tells us we have to have a literal hermeneutic. It's noble-minded to search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. That can only take place with a literal hermeneutic. 
When Jesus answered his temptations, he answered three times with, it is written. That demands a literal hermeneutic. He didn't say, you know, it is written and according to my allegorical approach. He said, it is written. And he answered every literal temptation with a literal hermeneutic in his application of doctrine. Now, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. So the first thing he references is the prophets. To believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And so, he starts there. He starts there. Recognizing that this was their deficiency. They failed to apply faith. They failed to trust in what the prophets said was going to happen. Including his death. Including his crucifixion. You know, they pierced me. That's in the prophets. They, uh, for my clothing, they cast lots. That's in the prophets. Okay? Scripture. The Old Testament Scripture spoke of the first advent of Jesus Christ and the second advent. But all of his suffering, see. And this was the problem that the believers of his generation had. They searched the Scriptures. They tried to reconcile the sufferings of Christ and the glories that followed. They didn't do very well. All right, they saw two different things, and, they, and there was one they didn't like. That suffering Messiah, no good. Okay, the glorious Messiah, yeah, preach that. Which one do you think got popular in the synagogues? It wasn't the suffering Messiah. You know, we heard that Christ is to remain forever. How do you say that he must die? Failing to believe the prophets. So we start with the prophets, and then he says. Was it not necessary? Oh, then he says, all that the prophets have spoken. Not just certain passages here and there. All that the prophets have spoken. Jesus is giving us another hermeneutic. We've got to search all the scriptures. We cannot neglect even one verse. It's the whole counsel of God's word. Paul said, I do not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. How I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's Word. Because once you start picking and choosing, you're violating Scripture. Scripture says don't add to it, don't take away from it. When you start picking and choosing and saying, well, I like this verse, I like this verse, I like this verse, and then you start ignoring the ones you don't like, that's the wrong approach. Jesus gives us our hermeneutics here. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary... Have-tos, the have-tos of Scripture. Another hermeneutic for us to follow. That the plan of God unfolds by necessity. The plan of God has a purpose, has a design. And in keeping with the Father's purpose, there are components that are then necessary. Alright? For example, designing uh, volitional creatures. Volitional angels and volitional humans. The purpose of God and the design of God to create volitional moral beings then carries with it necessities. Sin is a necessity. Evil is a necessity. God didn't create sin and evil, but by permitting, by by creating and designing volitional creatures and allowing them to exercise that volition, What was the consequence? What was then consequently generated? Sin and evil. Consequently were generated because God the Father designed volitional creatures. So there are certain necessary things. God and His necessity to be true to Himself. God cannot lie. God cannot compromise His integrity. So there are things that are necessary. The cross is necessary. Why is the cross necessary? Because without the cross, you and I don't get saved. Without His justice being satisfied, grace and love cannot be applied. There are things that are necessary. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? See, as believers under doctrinal teaching, we ought to have a frame of reference to understand the, the necessary components of the plan of God. 
Things that God Himself is obligated to. God's under obligation. He's under obligation to Himself. He's under obligation to His character. He's under obligation to His plan. He's under obligation to every promise He's ever spoken. Otherwise, if He violates one promise, He's a liar and Satan's right. God is under obligations. So we're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to Jesus' teaching that lasted quite a while, the whole the rest of the journey, and then they wanted Him to spend the night with them. Teach us more. Teach us more. We need this systematic teaching. Line upon line, precept upon precept. A little here, a little there. And if we don't get through it all this Wednesday, we'll come back next Wednesday. Why do we have the form of teaching we have in this local church? It's how Jesus taught. I believe the doctrinal movement is the 20th century, 21st century, um, the, the greatest imitation of what we have out of the life of Christ. And I think it has a significant place in, in church history. Anyway, preview for what our conference is about this coming October. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.